Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week I speak to Phil Burton-Cartledge, lecturer in sociology at the University of Derby and author of Falling Down, the Conservative Party and the Decline of Tory Britain. We discuss whose interests the Tory party really represents, how the party works and why, contrary to appearances, the Tories are in permanent decline. Thanks so much to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Phil Burton-Cartledge on why the left should study the Tories. Hello, Phil Burton-Cartledge, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? Very good, thanks. Very pleased to be here. Good. So we are talking about your excellent book, Falling Down, The Conservative Party and the Decline of Tory Britain. So the first question I have for you is why focus on the Tories and why have so few on the left thought that it's worthwhile to really kind of undertake an in-depth analysis of the enemy in inverted commas in the past? You kind of answered the question in the in um, in your question, really. Um, why focus on the Conservative Party? Well, like a number of your listeners, I guess, that um, they've had some history on the left. And we've always known that the Tories are the enemy. And the issue that we've got is by treating them as the enemy, do we actually properly understand them? Do we actually know what's going on with the Conservatives? I kind of got onto this through blogging over over a number of years. I've been blogging since 2006. And I took a break and returned in 2012. And this is when I started kind of really seriously analysing the Conservatives who were then in office. And I, I thought that that a lot of the analyses that you find on the left, on the far left as well, is is quite superficial, is, you know, you know that the Tories are the enemy and that's all you really need to know. But that kind of really hampers a lot of um, thinking, a lot of strategic thinking that we need to undertake. It's all very well knowing what your enemy is, but you need to understand why they do what they do. And you need to understand their class basis, obviously. You need to understand, in the the Tories' case, their popular appeal and how it is that the Tories are the most successful election-winning machine in not just British political history, but in world political history as well. And these were some of the tasks that I kind of set myself over a long period of time, is trying to kind of understand that, that class basis of the Tories and how they are able to translate what is a very narrow elite project because of course to use the old language which of course is still the best language how is it that a party whose explicit concern is the defense of capitalist social relations and particularly the defense of a minority class has been able to translate their politics so successfully into mass support that is the conundrum that I kind of set myself to try and unravel How do you understand the role of the Tory party in British politics? Is it enough just to say that they're the representatives of the interests of capital or the party of the ruling class? No, it isn't enough. Because 
we need a more sophisticated understanding of what the Conservative Party is, because, yes, it is the ruling class party, it is the preferred party of the British ruling class. It is the preferred party of British capital. But I think that a lot of thinking, particularly thinking on the left, is actually hampered and disarmed by what I dare say kind of centrist understandings of what the Conservative Party is. Because if you look at mainstream Labour and mainstream Labour's attitude towards the Conservatives, we see they tend to treat the Tories as just an opponent who are wrong about things. And that there is this long tradition on the left, on the centre-left, of that if you are able to expose what the Tories are doing, if you're able to show them that they are wrong, that their policies harm the wrong people, then they'll magically transform themselves and transform their policies. Or you'd have thought that after over 100 years of plugging that particular line of attack, that Labour would have learned that it doesn't work. So why doesn't it work? It's because Labour makes the mistake of assuming the Conservative Party, and a lot of lefts do this as well, of assuming the Conservative Party is the personification of capital as a whole. What the Conservative Party actually is, is a personification of the class interest of capital. Now, this is something that is sort of kind of a bit of a nuanced argument. Uh, So when you look at something like how the Conservatives have... um, behaved over the course of the last five years from the Brexit referendum onwards. You know, if you were taking the the standpoint that the Conservatives are, if you like, the personification of capitalist rationality, who are interested in growing Britain's markets, getting as many people as employed as possible, getting the profit rate soaring through the roof and uh, signing trade deals uh, all over the world then you're going to have a hard time understanding why it is that the Conservative Party so enthusiastically embraced Brexit, which actually diminishes the position of British capitalism vis-a-vis the rest of the world. And why is it that they they pursue a number of other kind of policy peccadilloes that really seem to harm the interests of capital, such as, you know, um, restrictions of migrant labour, for example, Um, the the border in the in the Irish Sea is another one, but if you actually start looking at things in terms of the Conservative Party, primary concern is the preservation of class relationships and making sure that the wage relation is not questioned, that um, the kind of the, the power of the state or rather the arrangement of the state isn't questioned, the power of the treasury is sacrosanct in the institutional setup of uh, the British state, that this is when you start to kind of make sense of things. If you start to see the Conservative Party itself as the primary means by which capitalist class power is secured in British society, that is when you can start making all these different connections about why it is that uh, that the Tories pursue self-evidently crazy policies from the standpoint of what you would imagine an ideal capitalist would be likely to pursue. And so this is what this book sets out to do. It kind of sets out to interpret the Conservative Party as a class-conscious project, as a project whose primary aim is the perpetuation of capitalist class relations, obviously, and that means also 
making sure that it foists divisions, it fosters divisions, it deliberately fosters divisions in wider society. It tries to clamp down as best it can on any kind of um, collectivity in society that might threaten its rule. And of course, it goes after those kinds of um, ideas or uh, those kinds of groups that might be able to promote some sort of challenge to it in, in the long run. And it has a lot of practice for doing this. You know, the Conservative Party, uh, the official modern Conservative Party dates from the 1830s. But of course, it has a prehistory that goes way, way back beyond then. Um, and so it is the prime, if you kind of want to use a bit of a Leninist terminology, the Conservative Party is their kind of their vanguard party. It is their um, the memory of their class. And do you think that's a self-conscious thing among, um, you know, conservative politicians and, and strategists? Do you think that they're self-conscious guardians of the status quo? And leading on from that, how does your understanding of the role of the Conservative Party in British politics influence how they develop policy and strategy? I think some of them are conscious of it. But of course, they wouldn't necessarily think about it in the terms that the book describes them. So they're not going to use Marxist terminology, for example, though I don't use a great deal of Marxist terminology. It has has to be added in this book. But they wouldn't use Marxist thinking or think through these things in explicitly Marxist ways. They've got their own sort of terminology, their own language through which they, they cloak, conceal, but also fundamentally understand what they think are their interests, what the bourgeois interest is. So some of them are more conscious of this than others. So if you look at the current intake of Conservative MPs from the so-called Red Wall, for example, that um, you're finding, particularly around the the recent national insurance increase that uh, was announced by Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak uh, last week to ostensibly raise funds for the social care system in this country, um, that you had a number of uh, so-called red wall working class Tories kind of bemoaning this attack on working people. And I just kind of think, to, you know, think, where have you lot been? You know, you, do you not understand the nature of your of the beast that you're part of? And of course, they don't. But some of them very clearly do. You know, you've got leading figures, someone like Boris Johnson, for example, is despite his buffoonish-like demeanour, he fully understands what the Conservative Party is. He fully understands who his electorate is as well. And he fully understands that he needs to just keep that electorate stoked, keep that electorate together, which is overwhelmingly comprising of uh, retired people and, um, and older property owners. And he will be able to win an election. There are other Tories that understand this as well. Someone like, I'd say, Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, understands this as well. But I also think there are also some so-called posh Tories that don't understand this. You know, someone like Rishi Sunak. I'm not, despite all the um, plaudits the man receives for his furlough scheme and all the rest of it. Though I have argued elsewhere that. Um, that the furlough scheme also is primarily around sustaining capitalist class relations. I don't think he has that same, he doesn't have the understanding of who the mass base of the Conservative Party is. He understands that he has to promote the elite interest, but how to kind of, um, how to push that in terms that have mass appeal, I'm not entirely sure he understands how to do that. And I'm sorry, Grace, you're going to have to repeat your second question. 
Sorry, that was me trying to <laughs> trying to push too many questions <laughs> into one. Um, the second part of the question was just how does your approach influence your understanding of how policy and strategy are formed in the Tory party? And yeah, I want to, I, I actually want to pick up on something that you just said as well, because you were talking about the, the kind of language that mm. is used to, uh, to kind of, you know, process how uh, the Conservative Party understands itself. And you talk a bit about Ralph Miliband in the book. And the thing I think that stands out um you know, one of the things that stands out qu- quite clearly in Miliband's work as to how this stuff is 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 understood is this idea of the national interest, right? Mm. And how important this idea of the national interest is in kind of um, shaping how the Conservative Party frames policy, whether you're thinking about that in terms of, you know, immigration or austerity or whatever. Um, so can you just, yeah, talk a little bit about how you think policy is formed and what some of the big you know, framing devices that are used to, I suppose, conceal the particular interests that are being, um, uh, you know, supported by that policy agenda? Okay, so the first thing is how policy is formed. Um, I mean, I, I do kind of talk a little bit in the book about the kind of, I offer a sort of a diagram of the Conservative Party and how it formally operates but the way the Conservative Party operates is anything but in formal manner. In a formal manner, it gives the Conservative Party invests pretty much all the power in the leader. If you're a Conservative Party member, you have very little say over your organisation apart from being able to vote in selections in your association meetings. You have very little say over policy, even though they do have a kind of a consultation process that kind of generates a number of policy forums, for, for example. But policy overall overall comes from the tight elite circle of the leader, uh, cabinet ministers, and of course, favoured think tanks as well. And because the the leader, who is more often than not the prime minister, and the think tank people and the senior ministers, they are in constant circulation with, uh, with their class. You know, that's who they surround themselves in day in, day out. And of course, the editorials from the Tory press as well, uh, they kind of take as signals from what their base is thinking. That's how they are able to triangulate policy. They don't tend to go so much in for the focus group approach, which has always been something that Labour is really beloved and really in love with. Uh, They're just more interested in looking out for their interests and thinking about how to I'd say market the narrow interest as the kind of the mass or the universal interest. And this is where um, I think, you know, the, the period of the Brexit period, for example, in particular, how Conservatives have used authoritarian politics over time is a good example of how they are able to, if you like, cloak class interests and marry the interests of a kind of a mass coalition of voters to interests that align with their class interests as well. So, for example, one of the arguments that I make in the book and have made elsewhere as well is around sovereignty. So, as you know, the Conservatives and Conservative philosophy more generally has an obsession with sovereignty, both of individual sovereignty and state sovereignty. And you'll know as well that the Conservative Euroscepticism is grounded very much on this idea of, of state sovereignty, about being able to do our own, pass our own laws and do what we like on the the world stage. What is all this about? Where does this come from? Well, it goes back to the beginnings of the the Thatcher project, because 
way Thatcher conceived her project was about partly not just about restoring the authority of the ruling class in 1970s Britain, but about restoring the authority of their primary institution, which, of course, is the British state. And she went about this, and this is something that Stuart Hall obviously wrote about as well in the 1970s and the 1980s, about um, exploiting moral panics that the press kicked up around race riots, around um, you know, undesirable minorities, around sexual minorities as well, and trying to kind of, if you like, push a sort of moral puritanism that was defined exclusively in terms of an authoritarian politics. You know, Thatcher, you know, a lot of commentators are quite, um, how should I say, um, nonplussed by the fact that Thatcher was had was someone who opened up loads of consumer freedoms, very superficial consumer freedoms to people, while at the same time having a very Victorian view of morality herself. But these two things go hand in hand, because by being able to engage in the culture wars of the late 1970s and early 1980s and restore the kind of mass authority of the state, this was a necessary preface for her to be able to carry through the restructuring programme that we saw in the 1980s. Obviously, you know, we, she, she took on the miners, which a lot of people will be familiar with. Also, she picked a lot of battles within the state bureaucracy itself. And it was about centralising the authority of the state within the government rather than within kind of outposts of institutions that exist uh, within the state. And this is something all of her successors, including Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, continued with. And why have they done this? What is this all about? It's because by centralising that authority in the executive, they were able then, the way that they were able to subordinate the rest of the state to the whims of the executive was through the introduction of markets. So they were able to use authoritarianism to effectively smash the labour movement and introduce more markets. Then the kind of institutions within the state have become increasingly subject to market signals, and which, of course, with various bits of legislation that Thatcher was able to push through, um, which invited private capital in to invest in state structure, which, of course, you know, fully realised itself under John Major and Tony Blair in the private finance initiative schemes. These market signals then kind of made these state institutions chase these market signals whilst providing profit for private providers, which, of course, again, left the, um, the state, the, the executive, supreme amongst the state everyone else was chasing market incentives except for itself now of course this that served the interest quite nicely of a lot of sections of british capital and international capital as well you know a guaranteed market underwritten by uh, state finances and tax money and what we see when we kind of move into the more into the modern era with uh, the Cameron coalition government and then David Cameron government itself from 2010 to 2016 is a continuation of these kinds of policies. But simultaneously, whilst the state, while the executive was supreme within the state machine, it still had certain checks upon it. And those checks came from Brussels, came from the European Union. You know, you often, you don't need 
to kind of me to recapitulate some of the the, uh, the scare stories that have appeared in the Tory press over the course of the last 20 years about the EU and how the EU was blamed for anything from migration crisis um, to laws that force us to give votes to prisoners and just to kind of give a, a couple a couple of examples. And so the kind of the Eurosceptic project, which is fully kind of always has defined itself, at least in Tory terms, as the heir to Thatcher. And of course, Thatcher herself was the arch-Eurosceptic or became the arch-Eurosceptic. It's precisely about the restoration of sovereignty, or as they saw it, was about restoring or making the British class interest fully sovereign within the, the territory of the British state. And I think this is the best way to interpret what has happened over the course of Brexit and, and so on. So we think about if you kind of put all your eggs in the basket of sovereignty, um, your primary project has to be, once you've won that sovereignty, as happened with the 2016 referendum, it's about trying to preserve it. And they... and. You know, we look at Theresa May and Boris Johnson's shenanigans uh, trying to negotiate Brexit with with Brussels, and all throughout they, their their primary concern was keeping together the Conservative Party because they understood that without the Conservative Party, their whole project of restoring sovereignty to the British ruling class, uh, making them the the full masters within uh, within Britain rather than having to count out to European capital. That was their overwhelming uh, priority. So that helps explain why May got herself into some right ridiculous positions during the course of the uh, the negotiation process and why Boris Johnson went hell for leather after he assumed office as, as prime minister and was quite prepared to sacrifice sections of his own party, including um, making sure that his own brother was sufficiently appalled to resign and step down at the 2019 uh, general election. And so this is an example of how they think through their interests. They identify Tories have an instinctive interest or an instinctive understanding of why sovereignty is important, because sovereignty is all about state authority and what state authority all about. Ultimately, it's about preserving the prevailing social order and whose interests does, does the prevailing social order serve? Why? It's a kind of the ruling class interest, the moneyed interest that the Conservative Party has traditionally served. What does it mean to argue in your book that the UK is in practice always a one party state punctuated by periods of two party rule? Right. OK. So this is an argument that I stole from John Ross. But of course, he was um, fully acknowledged in in the book. So in 1983, John Ross uh, wrote a book called Thatcher and Friends. And he was the first, if you like, to advance sort of a Marxist idea around the decline of the Conservative Party. And this is you can read this book as a kind of an update and a sequel to that that kind of overcomes some of the limits, I thought, of, of his approach. But he made the argument that effectively from the 1830s onwards, the kind of the, the traditional pattern of British politics has been one of one party dominance. So I think we're talking now uh, quite hazy uh, about this and always rubbish with figures. But I think it was something in the region of between 1830 and 1860, the, the old Liberal Party was absolutely dominant in office with very few kind of um, interspersed um, 
interludes, if you like, interspersed with interludes of, of conservative rule. Then between the 1880s and apart from a couple of long, administ- uh, long liberal administrations in the early 20th century up until the, uh, the 1940s, you had a period of conservative dominance and then after 1945, of course, you had Labour winning that famous election in 1945 and was returned to office again five years later, but then uh, kind of ceded power, if you like, to the Conservatives in 1951. Then you have one long period of Conservative dominance up until 1964. And then after 1964, you went through a period of Labour and the Conservatives alternating in office. That stopped in 1979, when the Conservatives came into office. And of course, they were there until 1997. New Labour took over from that point on. And then from 2010, we're back to a lengthy period of Conservative government. So John Ross argues that in a two-party system, you'd expect the um, government would would alternate more frequently amongst the, the chief parties, when in fact, in Britain, we have what you could argue is a liberal democratic one party system, where, of course, the Conservatives have absolutely dominated for the better part of two centuries. And so this is what we're, what we're getting at here. So this is also why it's important to think about Conservative Party decline as well, because if the Conservative Party is in decline and bearing in mind it is the overwhelming beneficiary of the one party system that has existed in this country for 200 years, that um, maybe there's a whole lot of problems that are besetting the political system as a whole. Now, of course, in this book, I don't talk about the Labour Party, except in passing towards uh, the end and a few asides on on Tony Blair. Um, But as we can see, as you've kind of addressed on your show on many occasions, Grace, that the Labour Party have got a lot of very serious problems and have had a lot of very serious problems for a long period of time. And so these kind of these problems are sort of part and parcel of the same sort of thing. Now, coming to the problems of the Tory party, rather than just as I think uh, I am probably guilty of focusing solely on the problems faced by the Labour Mm. Party. um, We've just seen the Tories kind of cement their image as the party of the old with this Mm. national insurance hike to pay for social care. Can you talk a bit about the role of age and also relatedly housing in explaining your perspective on the decline of the Tories? Yeah, sure. Um, um, The the kind of when you look at the age splits in voting behavior in Britain at the moment, um, these are age splits that are kind of very superficially understood by mainstream commentators. Um, but thankfully, there you know there is some work that's been done on the left that's tried to understand this. Of course, you know Keir Milburn's um, generation left is uh, quite you know is the usual touchstone for this. But I've also uh, written quite a bit of stuff as well. I had a piece in uh, Political Quarterly earlier in the year about the importance of, of values and culture and understanding the the experience of being working class in Britain, being young and working class in Britain and being without property in Britain. And so rather than kind of seeing conservative voting as some sort of essentialised effect of age, the argument I make in the book 
is it's all down to particular sets of social relationships which have been were set in motion during Thatcher's time. Now, whether she intended to do this or not is I don't think she did. I think it's just a happy coincidence, uh, happy consequence as far as the Conservatives are concerned that things have resolved in this way. So I make two arguments as to why older people are more likely to vote Conservative. The first is what I call and. I really hate this phrase, uh, the petty bourgeoisification of old age. By that, I mean that if you think about the experience of retirement, normally for, for most of us, we go to we spend our, our lives in work. Then all of a sudden you retire and then you don't have to work anymore. Well, the majority of pensions don't have to work anymore. And so they have, whether they're poor or rich, they have more time on their hands. They're effectively their own boss know what to do with themselves they can you know do what my mum does since she goes reti- since she retired she go she hops on the bus goes to derby every day and do some does some shopping or you could go bowling or you could go for a stroll around the park or you could watch television all day whatever it's entirely up to you what you decide to do but by becoming effectively your own boss and having no kind of responsibilities towards an employer that has a certain kind of uh, social distancing effect. But obviously, you know, you've got your, you know, your children, most pensioners have got their children, their family still, and they have family responsibilities to discharge. But they don't have that kind of direct visceral experience of what it is anymore to be a working person in early 21st century Britain. And because they're kind of a bit disengaged from if you like class relationships, for want of a better phrase, of the of the of the workplace, that that has a consequence of insulating them and kind of leaving them, putting them in a place where the conscious the consciousness that develops is somewhat adjacent to the consciousness of the small business person. Now, of course, if anyone knows their their kind of their basic Marxism. That uh, for Marx and for a number of uh, Marxist writers following Marx, he argues that the the petty bourgeois are a kind of a, a sort of a contradictory class location, but uh, also a highly insecure class location that feels that at any moment the bottom could drop out of their world because their you know their business might fail, but at the same time they crave security as well. Hence why when you look at authoritarian political movements or fascist movements for that matter, you tend to have a disproportionate number of people who are involved in those movements tend to be from either petty bourgeois or declassed backgrounds where those similar kinds of pressures are evident. My argument is that the experience of retirement in Britain, particularly since um, David Cameron guarantee the the triple lock pension has been able to make create a constituency of older people who are disproportionately conservative curious because conservative party speaks to their anxieties you know if you're retired and you are on a fixed income if you suffer a disaster of some description then you you haven't got the means to make good the kind of the shortfall in your finances. Most, you know, old elderly people are not going to be able to go out to work again, or even, you know, be able to get a job for that matter. They would be effectively be ruined by some kind of unforeseen disaster. And so that anxiety kind of manifests itself in a 
affinity for authoritarian politics, because ultimately what authoritarian politics offers is a sense of security, a sense of self-security of people feeling their place and being secure in their place in the world. So when you think about something like the the right-wing arguments around Brexit, which emphasised British nationhood, it emphasised anti-immigration politics, and when you look at a lot of the kind of the so-called anti-woke stuff that is put out by the right-wing press right now, all of this is about trying to kind of stoke up fears and tensions and unease with the world as it is. So simultaneously, the Conservatives can come along and propose simple authoritarian solutions that boil down to the smack of firm government to um, be able to sort things out and secure people's places or their sense of place within British society. So that's the first. And the second, of course, is property. Because what does property do? You know, if you become a property owner, it increases, it, it magnifies those kinds of conservative instincts that um, that we associate with property ownership more generally. So we think about, again, going back to Margaret Thatcher, and you think about her her um, plan to sell off council housing, what this was explicitly about, and you know this was fully intentional as well, and it was articulated in these terms, was about getting working class people to stop looking at their collective strength in order to pursue their interests. So, for example, in the 1970s, you know, uh, you wanted a pay rise if you worked at, uh, say, Longbridge in Birmingham and the Rover plant there. You, know, you would go on strike, you'd get a pay rise, or you'd get some issue solved at work through collective action. And this was kind of standard practice in the 1970s. But what Thatcher realised was that by introducing property ownership, by giving working class council tenants the opportunity to buy their own homes and making mortgages available for cheap housing that was built elsewhere as well, was that this would have incredible conservatising and atomising pressures on people. So if you are, say, for example, you know, you take out a mortgage to buy your council house, for example, in the late 1970s, then you're going to be think twice about taking strike action with your fellow workers at work if you've got mortgage payments to make. Because, of course, you don't need your mortgage payments. You get foreclosed and you could be could well be out on the streets. Uh, This was purpose, you know, this idea was arrived at purposely to undermine the collective strength of the organised labour movement. And of course, you know, it worked a treat. Now, of course, once you have an asset, you have an interest in uh, in wanting that asset to appreciate over, over, over time, which of course is exactly what has happened over the course of the last 40 years. Thatcher's other great innovation around um, privatising public services, particularly British gas and British telecom, again, was all about trying to create legions of small petty capitalists that would, in the end, vote conservative and undermine the Labour vote further. So they would see their they'll start to see their salvation in their own kind of individual efforts and the individual choices that they make rather than combining with their fellows at work and going on strike and achieving 
you know, increased living standards through collective action. What was the role of Blair and the Blair years in reshaping the Conservative Party? <laughs> well, you see, I don't talk, I purposely did not talk about Tony Blair at length during this. And I did have a debate about whether I should incre- include a chapter on Tony Blair. But in the end, because this is about the Conservative Party, I decided to focus on the Conservative Party out of office. But the kind of the impact that Blair had on the Conservatives was actually quite profound because for them, it was, it gave them a real fright, but not in the way that a lot of people might think. Because for a number of years, what New Labour was able to do, and this was quite common at the time, this was very well understood at the time, I remember these arguments quite well at the time, is that you know, Tony Blair was widely seen in 1997 as someone who was just basically offering Tory-like policies. This, you know, you can read the left publications of that period, but also quite a lot of the mainstream stuff in The Guardian, The Independent and so on. And so there were lots of people that were kind of switched on to what Tony Blair was about from, from the beginning. But what he effectively managed to do was he took the fundamentals of the Thatcherite settlement, which is A, the authoritarian state, and B, a continuing the presiding over the weakness of the Labour movement, and C, instituting and pursuing neoliberal forms of governance, that effectively they were able, Tony Blair was able to annex the kind of the core Tory competences. In other words, what New Labour presented itself as and was for a short period was the preferred party of the British bourgeoisie, of the, of the ruling class. And in Geoffrey Wheatcroft's book, The Strange Death of Tor- Tory England, he offers his own thesis of conservative decline. And he argues that effectively what Tony Blair did was just take, you know, steal all the Conservative clothes to the point where the Conservative Party was surplus to requirements. Now, in the book, I argue that we have to think about the period between 1997 and 2005, not as a period of unmitigated disaster, which is the temptation, is is the kind of the standard uh, argument that is pushed by the likes of, for example, Tim Bale in his... um, quite comprehensive history of the modern Conservative Party. But I think we need to kind of see this as a process of consolidation because in 1997, the Tories had the fright of their life. You know, they were practically wiped out. They were down to the lowest number of seats that they'd had for, I think, the best part of a century, perhaps more. Um, They were reviled in the country. And so when you when you are in a party that's been through that kind of profound state of shock, what do you do? Well, what they did over the course of seven years was try to kind of bring back their base and reconsolidate their base, which they did through kind of a variety of right wing policies, right wing position taking, anti immigration, dog whistling, uh, Euro scepticism, and all the rest of it. But there was a section of the Conservative Party that realised that they couldn't go on like this forever, that if they wanted to be the preferred party of government again, they needed to get their act together and go for a a rebrand. And the rebrand was that that was offered, you know, Tony Blair offered the Conservative Party lessons in this regard. Hence, this is where David Cameron 
and George Osborne come in because having been in Parliament since 2001 and having been closely associated particularly with Michael Howard's leadership when he was Conservative leader between 2003-2005, that they knew the parliamentary game. They knew what, what the deal was and they had an idea about what they thought needed to be done in order to... Um, no, win power again. And that was a superficial modernisation of the Conservative Party in the way that Tony Blair presented himself as a moderniser of the Labour Party. And of course, I'm sure most people here would agree that had Tony Blair not been uh, leader of the Labour Party from 1994 onwards, that someone else did, Labour would have won in 1997 regardless, but that's by the by. And so, yeah, they took superficial superficial lessons from Tony Blair about how the Tory party should look in order to win elections. So you had all the, you remember the hugger husky nonsense from David Cameronway flew to the Arctic Circle and kind of literally hugged some huskies and was pick, uh, did photo opportunities being on a, on a husky drawn sled to highlight the issues around climate change. And indeed, they kind of unveiled their slogan, Vote Blue, Go Green. They had a rebrand of their logo, which went from... Um, the, the kind of the torch to a, um, a a tree, which is now kind of a tree that's emblazoned with the, the Union Jack. But back then it was a green tree with a blue trunk. And they had all kinds of other superficial policy moves by Cameron, an emphasis on, you know, being relaxed about LGBTQ liberation, for example. And indeed, Cameron was able, was apologised for the party's role in in bringing in Section 28 of the Local Government Act in 1988, which it kind of outlawed the teaching about homosexuality in a school setting. And so you had all these kind of superficial kind of rebrands. And so, and also famously, Cameron told his party to stop banging on about Europe. So what he was trying to do was trying to kind of reposition the Tories as a kind of modern, sort of centrist-looking right-wing party, modelled maybe a bit more on the kind of the German Christian Democrats, more so than the, the Republican Party under George W. Bush. And um, and their idea was, you know, young, socially liberal people would have a look at this, working-age people would have a look at this, particularly if they were fed up with New Labour authoritarianism, and put their tick next to them when it came to election time. But what was quite interesting, though, was how very quickly that garb was discarded after the 2008 crash. So all of that very quickly went out of the window. I mean, it kept the kind of the socially liberal stuff around gay rights and, and so on. But the kind of the austerity economics was very clearly emphasised up front um, after the economic crash, criticising Labour for profligacy and spending too much uh, public money and promising that their priority would be able would be getting down the debt because the debt somehow was choking Britain's economic recovery and it is quite they say it's quite startling how very quickly they abandoned some of the touchy feely stuff and went straight into kind of outright thatcherite territory if you like it's kind of a socially liberal uh, Thatcherite territory. So that's effectively what they learned from Tony Blair. They thought that superficial rebrands work. And to a degree, it did work because they were in office 
in 2010 and Labour wasn't anymore. Finally, how do you understand the Conservative Party's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and particularly this, you know, well-rehearsed argument that was actually taken apart by none other than Dominic Cummings on Twitter the other day that uh, the Conservative Party is going to win by going right on social issues and uh, and left on the economy? What, if that is is incorrect, which I think both of us believe it to be, is the real significance of uh, the kind of dirigist response of the Conservatives to the pandemic and a response that looks likely to continue, or at least is being signalled that it might continue in response to climate breakdown? What they've done, what the Tories have been able to do throughout the coronavirus pandemic is even though I'm sure we would both agree that, you know, they've completely mismanaged the nuts and bolts of this pandemic that has seen tens of thousands of people die entirely unnecessarily. But where the Conservatives have been particularly excellent is on managing the politics of the coronavirus pandemic. So they the, so that they're kind of the key nostrums are, are not particularly questioned or challenged. So who were the only people that were calling out the kind of the awarding of contracts to Tory donors? Well, it was just kind of random lefties on Twitter, basically. Yeah, or maybe the occasional report in The Guardian. Keir Starmer and the Labour Party didn't go anywhere near this until much, much later. When the Conservatives were kind of opening up too early, now, who was criticising that? Again, the Labour Party was nowhere. The Labour Party was concerned with not being seen to be making political capital out of uh, the Conservative Party's failings, which, of course, gave the Conservatives a carte blanche to do what they wanted to do. And ultimately, what do what have they managed? So here we are in September 2021. The pandemic is raging like never before. Of course, you know, a lot more than 80% of adults are now vaccinated, but we have 40,000 cases per day. There are you know, well over between 100 and 200 people dying every day. And the kind of instruction from the government is just carry on as normal as if there isn't a pandemic happening. And this is because, once again, for them, public health comes secondary to the health of the one thing that the Conservative Party was designed and was set up to promote. And that is capitalist relations of production. Phil Burton Cartledge, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you, Grace. Thank you.